This January, over 750 OA members gathered in Los Angeles for OA's 50th birthday party. Events included keynote speakers, multiple long-timer panels, workshops, a big book boot camp, and even an appearance by Roseanne S. If you'd like CDs or MP3s of any or all of these sessions, go to oa50th.org and then follow the link to the recordings. That's oa50th, oa50th.org. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Mike. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael. I'm a compulsive overeater. I just want to say it is, uh, man, it is an incredible privilege to be in this room and to be able to share because tonight I'm really feeling gratitude for second chances in my life and gratitude for the people here who've really made a difference to me. The big book says that when we work with others, that life will take on a new meaning. And to watch people to recover and to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, and to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. And we know that you will not want to miss it. And frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. And that has been probably the thing that has kept me coming back uh, time and time again. You in this room and everybody in this fellowship that I've encountered are the bright spots of my life, and I'm very grateful. I'd like to just start off. um, This is a picture of, I shared this last week for those of you here. This is a picture of when I came in in 2002, and as I said, uh, L.A., a town where you can have two faces but not two chins. Um, this actually is a picture of me with three. <laughs> and uh, I'll pass that around. I came into Overeaters Anonymous in 2002 at a very hard bottom point of my life. It, it, was, pretty, it was pretty grim, at least how I felt it at that moment. But, you know, it's funny. When you're at the bottom... They say the only place you have to look is up. And uh, I have to say that there is a time in your life when you can bend your own knee or you can have it bent for you. And um, I was at a point where it was bent for me. I was weighing approximately 400 pounds, um, rolling around on my bed at 6.30 in the morning on a Sunday morning without without really much confidence in anything and with just an absolute incredible fear of even waking up and facing the day. Up until that time, I had been part of a a religious or I should say a church body fellowship where I had been involved in leadership, which was great in many respects, a blessing in my life. But yet at the same time, my own sense of isolation was beginning to cave in on me from being in a position where I was in leadership and kind of up in the front, I found myself just moving more and more and more to the back 
of, of the gymnasium where I was meeting with these people. And it got to the point where at this point of 400 pounds, um, not just the pain of the weight, but just a sense of isolation um, just drove me to a real point of despair. So much to the point where I did not even want to show my face in the door. And I have to say that as my clock radio flicked on in the morning, there was a show that was on in the morning. It was a guy, there was a guy who's still on in L.A., and it was a show called The Jesus Show. And I was listening, and I was thinking, wow, okay, and this guy, he talks in this, in this role. And, and I thought, you know what, I, I want to talk to him about the sense of isolation I'm feeling, you know, and I'll just be anonymous, and I'll just make my phone call, and... And I'll just tell him how rotten I'm feeling and how I can't stand to walk in. And, and uh, maybe I'll find some sort of little answer. The host of the show, he, I mean, he was really gracious, still is. But yet, at the same time, um, my answer, little did I know, would not come from just the host of the show or the main character, but it would be the screener who answered the phone call for that show, who is the producer of the food show later on in the day. And um, and I said, you know, I'd like to ask a question anonymously. And I said, but and I said, you know, it's going to sound a little off offbeat, but I, you know, it's honest, just the same. So I'll just uh, I'd like to ask. And she says, all right, let it go. And I told her about how I was, you know, the weight I was, and how I had the sense of isolation, and how I felt shut off from my community, how I felt like I could not even walk in to the doors. And she said, well, tell me a little more about your life. Well, I'm thinking now, wait a minute. You're screening calls here. There's not a lot of time for this banner. She says, okay, I'm going to put you on hold. She brings me back. She says, okay, tell me a little more. And she said, okay, hold on a second. This is what Jesus is going to tell you? This is what I'm going to tell you. You need to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I said, I said um, oh, thanks, you know. And, uh, and, and I thought, well, you know, out where I had come from, I had gone to a couple of meetings. There was a meeting, you know, maybe three people, three senior citizens at the time. And, I mean, nice people, but I just, it just didn't click with me, you know. And I just, I just was not able to relate at all. And when it looked at one time like my benefits were going to run out at work, uh, the person suggested, well, you can go to OA if you had problems with your uh you know, eating issues. So I immediately thought that OA was the second rung for people who couldn't afford therapy, you know. And I thought, well, thank you very much. She detected the hesitation in my voice, and she said, no, 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 let me tell you what this is really about. This is about the fact that no matter what you're going through in life, you do not have to face it alone ever again. It's about when you are alone in your staff workroom at work and the only thing that is staring you in the face is a vending machine, that someone will be there for you. And she mentioned how someone had brought, can bring food even, and the right kind of food is right. And she said, and you know, you don't have to be alone with this. And I said, well, thank you very much. And she said, oh, and uh, you talk about isolation. You say you're not in a relationship. She said, oh, and women? She just joked around. She said, man, there are a million women in OA. You know, she didn't tell me I wouldn't be dating for my first year in the program. But at the same time, this woman took the time to really listen to me. 
And I think that's what spoke to me probably more than anything else. So I did the best thing that I knew how to do. I left and I went on a diet. And I went off to Las Vegas on a trip and a few trips to the Bellagio buffet and that was it. And I was off to the races again. And pretty much it came to the point where I was... My hands were like on the Ouija board, so to speak, of my steering wheel, staring into every fast food restaurant every 50 feet, you know, unable to stop. And at the same time, incredibly obsessing about my body, getting on the scale five times a day when I would try to lose weight. And, and you know, it's so funny. I remember first time in program just off the, off the cuff saying, you know, gosh, can you imagine someone 400 pounds getting on the scale five times a day? And a person put their hand out, and they said, you know what, I can't imagine anybody getting on the scale five times a day. And that's when I realized, and it, it, just, it just further implanted in my head that the problem wasn't just my body. It wasn't a weight problem. It was a head problem. It was, it was the fact that I was crazy, you know. Um, I, had, I had a serious, I had an obsession of the mind, an allergy of the body, and a malady of the soul. And the fact of the matter is, is that I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. So those failed attempts led me back again, actually, um, to a point I had called, actually, my house of worship, and I called and I asked to speak to a member of the clergy and... I never got a call back. And I actually, then at that point, I said, God, I, I don't know. I said, I don't know what it's going to take, but if, if, if somehow I feel like you're in this with me, I'll do whatever it is I need to do. And I remember getting on my knees, and I, I remember just saying that. And before, it was always tomorrow. It was always tomorrow. Whatever I start, I'm going to start tomorrow. You know, let me just have this one last fix in, you know, and I'll start tomorrow. I said, you know what? I'm going to stop with it tomorrow, and no matter where it is, I'm going to go today. It was a Saturday morning, and I called the radio program, this time during the food show, and I actually asked the lady, I said, I said, I don't know if you remember me. I called a few months back, and she said, I was just thinking about you. I was just thinking about you, believe it or not, and I've been wondering how you've been. And I said, I can't do it, and I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to be going to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting. And I got on the computer, and I scoured meetings. And the only meeting that I could really find easily was Brentwood 530 Light a Candle meeting in L.A. I live in the Inland Empire about an hour away. I told her, I said, you know, this is really a long ways away, but I'm going to go. She said, you know, that our program says if you're willing to go any lengths, if you're willing to go any lengths, you can have this recovery. You can have this recovery that is here. And I made that phone call, and a man by the name of Roy said, you picked a great night to come. You picked a great night to come. And I called the lady on that radio show, and she said, you know what, I have a few things to do at the radio station here, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to meet you at your first meeting. 
And here is my picture on the Internet, so you recognize who I am when you walk into that meeting in Brentwood. Out of all the psychos that call into L.A. Talk Radio, you know, this lady decided to reach out to me. And instead of just another proposition, or instead of just another answer, or instead of just another diet program, or instead of just some sort of pious platitude, this woman offered her presence to me. And she walked me into the first meeting. And it was in this very room, May 22, 2002, that I found myself here, seated right amongst all of you, scared to death, you know, hardly able to walk up the stairs. And it just, it's a long, it's a long walk up those stairs. When you, and when I walked in, she met me there, and there she was. And when in this meeting I heard Jeannie B. speak, I heard a woman who was confident, who was serene, who talked about her own transformation, who talked about her own spiritual process of living, and who also was able to extend herself outside of herself, and also who had maintained a weight loss of over 100 pounds for over 15 years. I walked into a room where most people were normal body weight, and it was not what I had expected. I was a man 400 pounds, afraid to walk into a room with overweight people. And it was not what I expected. I saw that there was physical recovery here. And it was at that meeting where I came up and someone said, If you're new, come on up, take a newcomer chip. And I remember coming up to this very podium and saying, Hi, I'm Mike. And the sweet girl next to me said, are you a compulsive overeater? And I said, I'm a compulsive overeater. And it was like, it was, it was a painful thing. I mean, it was just like I'd been hit in the nose with a foul ball or something, you know. And it felt like it was just like, you know, just kind of crying, you know. You know, a friend of mine says, you know, the truth will set you free, but it'll piss you off first, you know. And, it, and it's just, um, it's pretty much the, the way it happened. And I was, I was very... Um, I was humbled. And the weirdest thing happened when I said that, you, everybody started applauding. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is really something. But I think the beautiful thing about that was it was at that point that I began to realize that the brokenness, which was absolutely essential for my recovery, could be divorced from the shame that I had from being a compulsive overeater. You see, up until that time, every single thing, it had always been a moral issue. You're good, you're bad. It wasn't a matter of what was going on in your life. Everything was everything about food was a moral issue. It was like, this is a good food, this is a bad food, this is a good food, this is a bad food. You can't do this, you can't do that. You can't do this. And then, sure enough, out comes the whip. You know, and then you restrict for a while, you beat yourself up some more, return back to the food. And the cycle goes over and over and over and over again. Then the next morning, you're, you're just basically there, and you say, get up, get out of bed, start eating again, and the cycle starts all over again. Not this time. This is the time when something started to change. Well, I spoke to Jeannie, and she said, um, she said, you know, and first of all, I was really surprised that the speaker 
of that meeting would take the time to talk with me. I mean, I thought she was some circuit speaker. I didn't know that she was just one of us, you know. And she took the time to talk to me, and she said, Honey, are you single? I said, Yes, and I didn't know it was coming. I thought it was the same thing as before. And she said, I said, Yes. She said, If you are, then there's absolutely no reason why you should not be attending meetings on the west side of Los Angeles. You should absolutely, you do not know what is at your disposal here. You can come into L.A., get yourself a place to stay, hit several meetings a day, make this place your OA retreat for a while. You know, the fact of the matter is, is I had considered hospitals, I had considered surgery, I considered all those things, and the cost was prohibitive. So what did I do? I took my tax return, and I started getting hotels on the west side of L.A. on the weekend. And I'd hit one, two, three, four, five meetings during a weekend. Just a simple step at a time. And sure enough, it started to happen. I had a host of friends that began to rise up around me and began to make themselves present in my life. And also, I had the opportunity to be present in theirs as well. Truly a program of one for all and all for one. One of my early friends, who's quite dear to me, is here tonight. I remember she invited me into her home for dinner, and it just spoke volumes to me. And uh, I thought, can you imagine someone, it just made the difference. So, I found myself at this meeting, and the next assignment was to get a sponsor. And I was thinking, who in the world am I going to choose as a sponsor? I don't know who to choose as a sponsor. And someone said, well, maybe you ought to find a want ad. Find a want ad, write yourself a want ad for what you want in a sponsor. Well, pretty much, I had kind of come to the conclusion I wanted someone who was somewhat gentle in their approach, someone who was in process themselves, who didn't feel as though they had all the answers, yet who had a, a notable sign of recovery as well. And a man came up to me, a very friendly man, and he put his number in my hand at the second meeting that I came to. And, you know, to be honest with you, he had a little bit of weight to lose himself still, but yet, and I thought, and I called him, and I said, so how are you? And he says, he said, Mike, he said, I got to tell you, I'm a, I'm a miracle. I'm a walking miracle. He said, I used to be 706 pounds, and I've lost approximately 400 pounds a day at a time. And he said, you can call me anytime you want, 24-7. And you know what? I did. Because I'll tell you, when you're coming off the food and when you're coming off binging and when you're coming off restricting, when you're coming off sticking your head in the toilet, when you're coming off doing all the crazy stuff that I do with food, just simply due to the fear that's in your head and in your own private hell, getting on the phone is a pretty good thing to do in the beginning. And uh, I did what he said. And he said to me, he said, you know, Mike, he said, if I can do it, you can do it too. And I lived off that man's hope. And you know what? Um, I'm going to miss that man because he passed away. And he passed away this past year, and he's been a blessing in my life. And I met him in this very room as well. I have to say, I wish that I could say that I was the, the poster child of sustained recovery in my life. I wish I could say that I got it, that it clicked, that it stuck and that I maintained my weight loss, and I wish that I could say that it was uh, something that was locked and sewed up. I'm here to say today that I'm still a work in progress. I'm here to say that I do not have all the answers. 
I'm a man with probably much more questions than answers in his own recovery. After a time of recommitted abstinence, the one thing that I do know for sure is that I can't walk through this alone anymore. And, and I relapsed. And it was, it was really tough again. Because sometimes, you know, even those people who embraced you the first time, it's sort of like they kind of gave you a pass the first time, but the second time around, sometimes you felt a little bit of distance. I am glad that the big book says this. It says, but life among Alcoholics Anonymous, in our case, Overeaters Anonymous, is more than attending gatherings and visiting hospitals, cleaning up old scrapes, helping settle family differences, explaining the disinherited son to his irate parents, lending money and securing jobs for each other when justified. These are everyday occurrences. But no one is too discredited or has sunk too low to be welcomed cordially if he means business. And I remember getting on the phone with my friend in this program, and I remember feeling isolated again. The wall that was there before was starting to creep up again. And though not at my top weight, I felt that fear return. And I remember driving on the 10 freeway and looking at the lights of L.A. And she said, Mike, whatever you do, do not leave. Just don't leave. And I had friends in this room who spent time with me, who ate meals with me. and said, you know what? I just want to tell you that it doesn't matter to me anything. I love you for you. I love you for you. And that's it. And you know what? It kept me coming back. And it helped me start again. And it helped me, again, choose a plan at work. What's it like today? I've just got to say that I'm in a place right now in my life, right now where I wish I could say, even though I have now, uh, I just like to say that, like it says here in the big book, it says, like everyone else, I have good days and bad days. Unlike my attitude while I was still in the food, however, I rarely dread what is going to happen to me today. I have even had the chance to see good things come into my life. And I work the steps. I'm working with a new sponsor right now who's actually out in my area. And uh, that was a God shot. I didn't think that I would find anybody in my area out in the hinterlands, you know, to work with, even though I still attend meetings. I I consider right now this meeting and... Well, actually, I consider... I consider the relapse and recovery meeting my home meeting right now in San Fernando Valley. And uh, that's where I I attend on Sunday morning. Today, the thing that keeps me coming back is the same thing that kept me coming in the beginning. And that is the two things that I probably look for in every single meeting. And that is identification and hope. The simple fact that someone identifies with my plight in life the fact that someone gets where I'm coming from, the someone that understands, that has a, a common lexical basis of understanding, it's in the big book, um, that's willing to listen, and then hope. It's the hope that I can walk through my fears a day at a time. It's the fact, it's the hope, it's the, the people who are willing to share their experience with me and walk through these trials of life. Today I'm in a position where there's financial stress. I'm in a relationship, a budding relationship, where I'm needing to take things literally a day at a time. 
right now my father is in hospice and he's waiting to go. He's waiting to go home. And it's not easy. And I feel like my whole life right now is waiting. But it's the people in this program that keep me anchored to abstinence and just the principle of living day at a time right now. And, um, and that sign says 10 minutes left. And man, I'm glad because I'm almost out of gas, you know. You know? And um, um, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, thank you for offering your identification and for your hope hope for me. You know what's great is you keep coming back and there's nothing you won't hear. You'll hear some identification on some level. If what I said to you today doesn't make any sense, keep coming back. There's going to be someone who's going to click with you. There's going to be someone who's going to have what you need. And uh, with that, I think I'll just stop and maybe just take a couple of questions. Not saying I have all the answers, but, you know, but yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, the question is, what do I do on a daily basis to stay in touch with God or my higher power? On most days, I attend a meeting. Right now, I'm probably at three to four meetings a week. Um, I make three outreach calls a day. I have to say that because of the trials of life right now that I'm in, I'm praying a lot more. And right now, it's um, I find myself oftentimes now in a posture um, where I'm kneeling. And it's great. Not only that, um, even though I felt the isolation in my own religious community, I haven't cast that off uh, aside. I realized that the wall, in many respects, that existed between me and God and others, um, I am responsible for building brick by brick. And uh, every day I try to take a brick of that down in some small capacity. I do read literature. Outside program, I do read my own faith literature, and I also read my my program literature. And... uh, that's where it is right now. So. Absolutely. Yes, it has evolved. Abstinence, and I'm going to just talk on on food plant. I have a bottom line that I maintain, and you know, I, I won't necessarily spell that out right now at this point. Um, before, it was very, it was highly restrictive. Um, when I first came in. It was very restrictive and it was not sustainable. It was very, it was part of a very tight regimented program and yes, it has evolved. I worked it out and pretty much, and, and then also I realized that there was something very important about what my sponsor had told me in the beginning. He said, remember this, Mike, about abstinence. Your abstinence is not about restricting. Your abstinence is ultimately about your freedom. I work now a food plan that I've worked out with a, a dietitian, and actually that my sponsor knows about. I have a boundary with the amount of food that I eat within a day. I do eat at certain intervals during the day. I don't necessarily have a magic number like three times a day or four times a day. 
but I do eat within boundaries. I do weigh and measure certain things. Not so much because there's a whip out to beat me up if I don't do it, but because I know that I'm secure if I do. You know? I know there's freedom in that. You know, it's I don't have to worry. And uh, trust me, I can worry about food. I can eat something here and feel like I'm swelling out to here, you know, and there's no rational basis for that. But I know, even if I feel that way, if I'm within my boundaries of weighing and measuring, I can keep my head in the process and out of the results. So that's part of my plan, and I have a bottom line. And now it's a little broader. I have certain things that I can have. The funny thing of it is, is that I've noticed that there are some items I just haven't eaten for the last year. I honest to God can say I have not sworn them off. They've just gone. I consider them that as part of my abstinence as well. So I abstain from those items. Thanks a lot. Michael. Um, do I ever get worn out with program? And the answer is yes, I do. I get very, very tired some days. Um, you know, L.A. is just incre- You ask anybody about L.A. I don't see how people in L.A. do it here. It's absolutely amazing. Even just driving to the meetings, you know. <laughs> Holy cow. And sometimes I feel it is very, it is very, very tough. But yet the rewards are there. I heard someone say in a meeting the other day, it's like Mark Twain, though. He says, I always hate to write, but I'm always happy to say I've written, you know. And uh, it's sometimes the same way when I feel that way about program, uh, about going to meetings, and sometimes just doing the deal. Uh, I do I do get tired, but yet at the same time, I, I do feel the blessings, you know. And sometimes I do scale it back. Sometimes uh, a friend of mine, actually Jeannie, who was at this podium, said, Honey, you don't need a meeting, you need a nap, is what you need, you know. And so that's what it is, you know, so... You know, that's a great question. Thanks, Gary. Um, I talked with someone about this in program in my Claremont meeting, who had over 20 years in program. And she said, I want to show you something. She turns to Chapter 7 in the big book. She says, practical experience shows us that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking or eating as intensive work with other as with other alcoholics or with other compulsive overeaters. So one way I shut it off is to get into somebody else's head and out of mine. You know, it's a gimmick. And um, and also, and I'll, I'll say there are things that I do on a, I, I do exercise. You know, it's not a tool of recovery, but it's something I do for myself that helps. Um, I give it up to someone in program. I talk about it. I sometimes book in commitments. I have uh, written things down and put them aside. Um, um, whatever I can do to get out of my head sometimes is a, is a very good thing. Uh, I wish I could say that it goes away. Sometimes it wakes me up in the middle of the night and the chatter's there, you know. And um, the, the touchstone, though, of my spiritual progress, though, even in those times, is sometimes through prayer and meditation, is to give those things to the Lord, you know, in my life. That's that's where it is. I have a question in terms of um, relapse. You were going to talk about how to avoid relapse or kind of your experience 
or how your non-primary lessons turn around, or like what you would, you could share about. I I haven't relapsed, but I always wonder if I could or would, or what people's experiences are with relapse, what led to a relapse. You know, I've heard it oftentimes said, thank you very much. How do you avoid a relapse or, or what do you do to avoid a relapse? Um, a friend of mine one time said to me, he said, you know, I, I've heard this oftentimes said in program. I, you know, I've always heard that I have another binge in me, but I'm not so sure that I have another, another recovery in me. And you know what? I said that too at times, but you know what? Probably in a way that was a good thing because I don't think the recovery is totally up to me. You know, maybe this time this recovery is because of a surrender to God instead of just simple resignation. Um, I would say several things. Keep coming back. Stay connected. As my friend John Kay in this program said to me, stay close. Stay close. And you know what? Honesty, openness, and willingness. The same things that brought me here are the same things that are going to keep me here and keep me in recovery. Thank you very much.